All right. Let's get rolling. We're going to get things kind of back on track and pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in this, this series of the alternate reality and looking at the reality of the world that we live in. Not the reality of the world that we see, but the reality of the world of who we are. And so we began to lay a foundation of getting an understanding of that leading up to when Chad was coming in. Because obviously he wrote a book of the same title, right? So we share a commonality there. I didn't know that at the time of this. I did not steal that from it. It was ironic when we started. I know. It's just what a coincidence, right? But be that as it may, and let's just be honest, Chad didn't come up with it either. You know, just so you know. Like, I've been asked that, like, the titles of some of the series that we do. It's whatever I can find the best artwork, because I don't want to make none of that stuff. Like, that's really, I'm like, okay, we're going to call it this. Like, I'm not that clever, and I am definitely not good at graphic arts, just so you know. If any of you are, we are looking for some help. So, anyway, but looking at the world for what it really is, and the definition of reality is the world of state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. So when we look at this from the spiritual aspect, What we've got to get this understanding, what Chad was trying to hammer home, what we've been talking about week after week, is who you are is not what you see in the mirror. It's not the people that you interact with. That's not them. What's them is what's on the inside. And we've got to be honest, sometimes when we're dealing with people on the inside, we're dealing with dead people. Right? Because they're not born again. They're dead inside. Now that sounds harsh. And some of the things I say today are going to be a little bit harsh, at least from today's cultural aspect. But we have to get an understanding of what Scripture's mandate is to you and I. And who we are matters because we have a responsibility. Imagine, if you will, if you hired somebody and you just said, listen, I've got this job that I need done. But I just want you to kind of just figure it out. Figure out what the job is. Figure out what my expectations are. Figure out how you're going to accomplish it. But if you don't do it right, there's going to be problems. But I want you to figure it out. Can you imagine? No. Why do we spend so much time teaching our children? Because they ain't going to figure it out. That's why. Right? I mean, good Lord. You ever look at your kids and you be like, you can't be that dumb. You can't be, right? I mean, not these two. It's the other one that's not in this room right now. Right? Like, did that just really happen? Did that come out of your mouth? Did you really do that? You can't be that dumb and still breathe. There's no way. Right? Yeah, I know. Point at your brother. Isaac will take it. He knows. He's like, no, I really can't be that dumb. <laughs> I've got your genomes, okay? But the thing is, is like you look at him and you're like, wow, wow. If you've ever employed a person, ever, okay, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right, Mike? You're like, you really just do that? I used to have a lawn care company. You know what makes lawn mowers work really well? Oil. Yeah. Maybe we should check that once in a while. Just a thought. Hey, the motor blew up. Did you check the oil? I didn't know I was supposed to. Really? The 47 times we told you about that wasn't enough? He didn't stay employed long. John chapter 17, verse 13 says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that you may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, 
I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. This passage has everything that you need. Everything that you need to know can be found in here. First and foremost, the world hates them, referring to us, to the disciples, because they're not of it, just as I am not of it. God, I pray not that you keep them out of this world, but you keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. And here's the key. Your word is truth. Truth matters. Man alive does it matter. Because it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters is what is truth. What did we just see here? Your word is truth. Does that matter? Where do we find the words of God? So is it true? Should we believe it? Is it easy? Because we see things that don't line up with this. And we have a hard time separating the world we see from the world that we're a part of. Because the world we see is what dominates us. It dominates our emotions and our feelings. Like cheering for a certain football team. It will dominate you. It will depress you. It will make you question all your life choices. Self to sleep. Some of you can relate. Some of you have been Mizzou fans, so you're like, I thought that was normal. Anyway. <laughs> but the thing is, is like, we see that, and we know we shouldn't be carnally minded, but yet we are. Because we don't think spiritually. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. How could else could we say that? Sanctify them. Set them apart by your word. What happens when a born-again, spirit-filled believer begins to walk in the fullness of God's word? Just simply accepting it as truth. Treating it, it as if this is the way it's supposed to be. I had the privilege just, just the other day, there's somebody here locally, I don't want to get any details, but uh, he and I got together for lunch. We do, do this periodically, usually once a year. And we had a four-hour Bible study. Can you believe that? And you're like, yeah, I can. You talk a lot. But that's besides the point. But one of the things that it was, it was Mark 16. Okay? What does Mark 16 ultimately say? Believers lay hands on the sick and they will recover. We're talking about the idea of healing. This was like three, four weeks ago now. And I said, what does that mean? And he says, well, you know, if believers will lay hands on the sick, and if it's God's will, they will recover. I'm like, hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, here, I, I don't disagree with the sentiment. The question is, first of all, how do we know if it's God's will? Second of all, what did it say? He says, well, believers lay hands on the sick, and they'll recover. I'm like, read it like a fourth grader. In other words, if you're reading this, and you didn't know anything else, but you just read that, what expectation would you have? He says, well, I guess that believers would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. I'm like, so weren't you taught differently? He's like, well, yeah. I was like, but what does it say? This is why it took four hours. 
Because it's like, what does it say? There are no caveats. It doesn't say if it's the Lord's will. It's basically laying out what the Lord's will is. Because if you didn't know this, that was written in red. Jesus said it. Last I checked, he was the Lord. Thus it's his... I know, that's too complicated. Let's keep going. You see, we are his imager, his representative, his agent. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. From every aspect of Christ's walk, those who say they abide in him ought to walk as he walked. Do what he did. Say what he said. Believe what he believed. But here's the thing, and this is where we're going to go today. He who says, I know him, that is a declaration being made. How would we say it? Well, I'm a Christian. That's how we would say it, okay? They didn't use the term Christian and come till later. He who says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. So in other words, if somebody is claiming to be a Christian but are not obedient to his word, what are they? Who said it? John said it. Disciple of Christ. Where did he get his info? Not Google. The truth is not in him. So that tells us something. If we claim this, but we're living separated, we're a liar. You see, as we've gotten into this aspect of the imager of who we are, we realize that we're representatives of Christ. And just like Christ, you and I grow in our understanding. And we grow in our faith. Now, let me explain what that means. We grow in our faith in the aspect of that our trust in God becomes greater the longer we do this and begin to step out. Just like Jesus did. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51 it says, and then he went down with them, from, uh, came from Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And she, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Do you realize if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, we should be doing the same thing? You should increase in wisdom and a society that is not. You should increase in stature. You should increase in favor with God. And you should increase in favor with men. That doesn't mean they'll like you because they probably won't. You see, he grew in his understanding of who he was and the will of his father. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. He grew in his understanding of the ultimate authority that he had on the earth. And how did he do that? Just like you and I do, it starts with the study of Scripture. If you eliminate the Bible, the, any understanding of God is nothing more than an opinion. If Scripture is not true, then any God claim out there has to at least be plausible because there is no standard of which to apply it to. So if God is a woman, it's possible if there isn't scripture that says God is a man. Fair enough? Y'all rolled your eyes. Do you know how many eye rolls we got right there? Y'all are like in unison today. I like this. This is good. You're awake. That means you didn't watch the end of the game last night. Good for you, spirit-filled people. Okay. So 
To do what Jesus did, we have to think like he thought. We had to see like he saw. And what you see will determine what is the real you. Did Jesus think carnally or did he think spiritually? Spiritually. How do we know? I have to be about the will of my Father. My food is to do the will of my Father. Forty days of fasting. He's pretty hungry. You would be too. The enemy comes and says, hey, turn stones to bread. That's a great idea. It's not a temptation if it's not possible. 40 days, bread looks really good. Keto is out the window. You do not care. Give me those carbs. But his response was a spiritual one. It is written. He does that time and time again. We see that he was spiritually minded. Were the apostles spiritually minded? Sometimes. Yes and no. We see both sides, right? Did he not look at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan? Was he thinking spiritually or carnally at that moment? He was thinking carnally. Carnally in the aspect of he is looking at the flesh. They're coming to get you and to kill you. Oh no, we won't let that happen. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking spiritually. You see, Jesus grew in his understanding because he read stories like we talked about, the 12 spies. He had two different viewpoints. One of them was spiritual. One of them was carnal. We saw the story of David and Goliath. David being willing. The entire armies of Israel too scared. One was thinking spiritually, the other carnally. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. A whole group of people thinking carnally, but three men thinking spiritually, saying, if you throw us in, we will not. God will save us. And if you don't, we will not bow down to your gods. Their life's on the line. Did they know how God would respond? Did David know how God would respond? Yep. Did the two spies know how God would respond. Yep, every single time. Does God move mysteriously? No. Paul said this. This was genius. It's too bad Jim's on out of town today because he should hear the genius that came out of Paul's mouth. Y'all ready for this? Are you sitting down? Of course you are. You know, we talk about this. God doesn't move in mysterious ways. He moves in predictable patterns. And Paul said something last week. We're saying like, God moves in God's ways. Now, that's profound when you think about that. Did I say that right, Paul? You remember saying this? Uh, Paul, you're getting all the credit, buddy. You may or may not have said this. If God, God doesn't move in our way. God doesn't move in our time. That's how we always say it. But God doesn't move in our way and according to our intellect and even our understanding. But he moves in his way. The question is, is can we know what those ways are? Yeah, because we have predictable patterns of how God has moved. See, when you understand something that you are a sojourner on this earth, That sojourner means that we are from a different place, but we are here right now. In 1 Peter 2, 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that would be the unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, it's a separation of ourselves to the world. And I showed you all those pictures a few weeks ago. But a born-again believer walking in the fullness of the Spirit, understanding that we are in a world that we are not a part of, but that we are an agent of God sent to this earth to carry the message of love, compassion, and mercy. And that a Savior gave up His life for ours, a propitiation for the sins that we no longer have to answer for judgment upon our own works. Because we can't. But a way was made. We look different. We talk different. We act 
different. We are sojourners. But as a sojourner, an agent of God, we'll come back to that. We have authority on this earth. A disciple of Christ. There were vast amounts of them. They were everywhere. As I showed you guys, it's not, we think disciples, you think 12. How many disciples did Jesus have? Well, he fed 5,000 men at one shot, and they had women and children there too. These were people that the apostles had baptized. As we saw, there was a debate. The, the apostles of John, or disciples of John, were like, uh, hello, they're all going to Jesus. Like, what about you? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. Thousands of disciples were made. At one point, he sent 70 of them. Preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. There were hundreds of thousands of disciples following Jesus everywhere. And they were agents of Christ, meaning representative of, as Jesus was an agent or representative of whom? The Father. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus never spoke on his own authority. He always acted on the authority of the one who sent him. Never once did he say, look what I did. He always said, I must be about my father's work. I don't say what I don't hear him say. I don't do what I haven't seen him do. And it talks about, and he will show greater things. I mean, there's all of these passages that we have read, and we read through them, and because we've read them so many times and so quickly, or, or here's the worst part, okay? Is that we've heard it preached by somebody, maybe even here, that we think we have an understanding of the passage, so we just take that, that cursory understanding, like, well, this is it. And then we move on, and we just assume, oh, well, I already know what that means. Well, do you? Are you sure? Have you dug into it? I was telling Derek, Derek and I met for lunch this week, I've just been reading through the book of John again, real slowly, and in three days I got through four chapters. You know how many times I've read John? You know how many times I've underlined John? There's nothing left to underline. And as I'm reading, I'm like, oh my goodness, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? It's amazing. Because when you take off these lenses and start seeing what God is speaking, it's like, man, that's powerful. So look at John chapter 5. Verse 24, it says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now let's stop. So who's speaking here? This is Jesus, right? He who hears my word, verse 1, first part I should say. He who hears my, who's hearing his word? Well, everybody who's Hearing his word, right? No different than right now. Who's hearing my word? Y'all, y'all here. This is very simple. This is not complex, okay? He who hears my word, but here's the caveat, and believes in him who sent me. Who's him? This would be the father who did what? Sent his agent to the earth. Has everlasting life. Shall not come into judgment. And it has passed from death to life. Life when? Death when? When they believe in him. So we see what's going on here. He is talking about the salvation experience, as we would call it. Okay? So he who hears my word 
and believes in him. So that tells me what his word is. His word is pointing people to the Father. Look at what he does. Does he ever take glory for himself? He always gives glory to the Father. Why is that? He's representing him. He's an agent of the Father. They have everlasting life. Verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Okay, now let's look at this again. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Why is he granting that? He's passing that authority onto Jesus, the Son of God, on earth. Remember, he has emptied himself of his godhood and become a man. He's granted the Son to have life in himself and given him authority to execute judgment also. So did Jesus have the authority granted upon him that the Father gave him? Yes. Let's go on. Do not marvel at this. Why did he say that? Because just like all of us, as we're reading this very slow, we're like, whoa. Right? We're all marveling. Like, Wait a minute. The Father had to give authority to the Son of God? But that's what Jesus told us, right? Because Jesus wasn't on the earth acting like God, you know, twinkling his nose or snapping his fingers and things appear. He's not a genie in a lamp. He's acting as a man acts, filled with the Spirit, with authority from God. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He can of himself, the Son of God, do nothing. As he hears, he judges. I know we don't like that word. My judgment is righteous because I don't seek my will. This is Jesus, the Son of God, but the will of the Father who sent me. What made his judgments righteous? It was the Father's will. You guys see that? Was he here acting on his own accord? No. He said, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. He's crying out as a man. Does God feel pain? No. But God on earth does. I can of my... Do you get that? Like, do you, do you really get that? Though? That's the thing. Is he's literally telling us that of himself, he can do nothing. What he hears, he judges. It's righteous because he seeks the will of the Father who sent him. You see, in the Hebrew terms, okay, a Jewish term, is shaliach. I think I have that up. There you go. It literally means agent. He is an agent of the one 
who sent him. Think of secret agent. Jesus was on earth carrying out the will of the Father. How did he know what his will was? Did he know what the will of God is? Of course he did. But wait a minute. We're supposed to walk as he walked. You see, a disciple of somebody is an agent of somebody. With the disciples, think about this. People would bring other people to the rabbi, to the teacher. That rabbi would baptize them. Who was doing all the baptizing? John was. Who was doing all the baptizing for Jesus? The disciples were. Like that was unknown. They didn't, they didn't baptize him into somebody else. They brought them to the teacher. It'd be no different than as if you guys like found some piece of nugget online or found this guy's like, man, you need to read this book. This is really good. That's what they did. Listen, you need to hear what this guy says. Come here. I want to introduce you to him. Let, let him talk to you. But here they were carrying it out. They were acting as agents of Jesus. So we get this. I want to make sure we understand. Jesus was on this earth as a man, carrying out the will of the Father, as the agent or the representative or the imager of the Father. I only do what he shows me. I only say what I hear from him. I'm to carry out his will. Not my will, but yours be done. He is an agent of the Father. And you and I are supposed to carry out the mandate of Christ. Not my will, Jesus, but yours be done. I will go into all the world, and I will make disciples. I will be obedient to you. And you have equipped me with everything that I need. There's nothing I'm lacking to do the job. So look at this. Because I want to show you what comes with this. Okay? What we've been talking about is the representative of Christ. What do we do? We carry that mercy and we carry that compassion and the message of the cross and the kingdom of God is at hand. But we've been talking about the part where we lay hands on the sick. We do what Jesus did. But there's another part of this that we often miss that comes with it. It will show you greater authority in your mind than you even realize when you recognize this. So let's go. Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 1. You guys know the story. Matthew chapter 9 verse 1. So he got into a boat, he being Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw the faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Okay? Now, did they bring him to get his sins forgiven? No, they did not. He was a paralytic. They brought him to not be a paralytic. I don't know what the opposite, unparalytic. I don't know, I'm making stuff up. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Why did they say that? Why did they say that this man blasphemes? Because he looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a minute. Who forgives sins? There ain't no man, no man that can forgive sins. Only God. It's a pretty bold statement by Jesus. Do they have a right within themselves to be upset? Absolutely. To a degree. Verse 4. But Jesus, knowing of their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, they're asking a fair question. But are they thinking spiritually or are they thinking carnally? 
we know they're thinking carnally because they're thinking contrary to God. And what did he just call that? Evil. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? I'll be honest. You know what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Because what do we see happen? Not necessarily anything. So what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorify God, who had given such power to whom? Men. What did Jesus just demonstrate? Did he have the power to heal? Did he have the authority to heal? He had authority to cast out demons. Did he have the authority to forgive? Yeah. He was an agent of the Father. But where to walk as Jesus walked? Look at John chapter 20. I want you to see this, verse 19. This is after the resurrection. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now stop for a moment. Is it a, a, a tit for tat here? As I was sent by the Father and the authority that I have and the power that I had and all that, I now send you. Is that a fair way to say that? Is there any distinction being made between how the Father sent him and what Jesus was to carry out? Jesus now, with that same authority, sends them. You guys see that? Okay, watch this. And he said, uh, when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now watch, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Did the disciples have the power to forgive sins? Did they have the power to retain sin? Isn't that interesting? You ever thought about that? I know you haven't because neither did I. For many years. But think about this. You see, we live in a world right now is where you've got an us versus them. An us versus them in the sense that, well, we're believers and they're sinners. And yes, that's true, but we don't know their heart. And we just need to love them into the kingdom. We don't judge them. We don't get on them, tell them that they're facing eternity in hell. We can't tell them that. Because we don't know their heart. According to that, can they know their heart? How do they know? How? Ultimately by their fruit. See, here's the thing. I love this too because I hear this all the time. Like, well, we just need to be more loving and compassionate. And yes, there's truth to that. Everything needs to be, you know, have a little sugar on it. But it's like i just want to love people in the kingdom and i'm like how's that working out for you because those people will say that i'll ask this question I'm like how many people have you truly led to christ and the answer if they're being honest is almost none 
Because when a disciple is made, a transformation takes place. They go from death to life. You can get anybody to say sinner's prayer. There is no such thing. People recite a prayer. I could walk down the street and I could go up to a crowd of people and say, you know, 15 people standing around and say, hey, y'all, I'm going to say this prayer. We just repeat this after me. I promise you, if I start, somebody will do it. If no other reason to shut me up so that they can go about their life doing whatever they were doing. Okay? Did they, give their, did they go from death to life? Did they give their life to Christ? No, they tried to shut me up so they can go about whatever they're doing. But here we see something interesting, is that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He gave this them this authority, just like he had from the Father. It's, it's, it's as if we could look at somebody and say, listen, I know you think you're on the right track, but let me show you, because your actions don't match your words. There's a distinction between death and life. When you touch a dead thing, you know it. There was a time several years ago, and I'm, I'm grateful for this, and maybe I told you this story, but um, this was the first encounter like this that I had when we were living out in Hastings. I had a kid, and most of you guys know I'm a very early riser. I get going. I don't sit still very well, and I'm never late. And I say never late. I really mean that. I, I hate late. I like to start on time, be wherever I am early. I do not like that. And so for whatever reason, I just could not get moving that morning. I just like little distractions, all of that. And I was running a few minutes behind. When I say a few minutes, I'm talking like five at the most. You can make up five minutes if you know how to drive. So with that being said, I get out on the interstate. And as I'm coming up over the hill, I'm heading towards Lincoln. I can see like smoke coming up from one side of the interstate but I didn't know I couldn't tell I was too far away I couldn't really tell what it was but it really looked like there was a vehicle sitting on the shoulder that must be on fire or something because it was smoking and as I get up closer I realize it's not in the shoulder it's in the lane and as I get up closer I realize it's facing me and I'm like oh my goodness and I pull off to the side of the road and I get out of my truck and I'm looking in here and there's, all the windows are down, and there's nobody in it. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, did somebody have a wreck? Are they sitting on the side of the road? I'm looking, and some other people happen to get out, too. And we're all looking, and we're looking around trying to find it. Somebody like, is they hurt? I mean, what's going on? I, I was not prepared for this. And um, we start walking around, and I look forward, and about 50 yards-ish, I see a person laying on the, just, just past the shoulder. And I ran up there to him, and what had happened is the man was driving the other direction, fell asleep, crossed the lane, went airborne, I guess, and he was thrown out of the vehicle. And when we got there, there was no life left in him. Wasn't prepared for that. We're doing CPR. We're doing everything that we knew to do in the moment. But I'm telling you something. As I had my hand on that man as we were doing chest compressions, there was no doubt this man was dead. There was no life. The body felt different. There was a distinction that you could tell. This wasn't somebody that was just severely hurt. This is somebody where life has left them. There was a distinction. And if you've ever done anything like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've had to help move a few bodies for the uh, coroner here in, here in town. Yes, sometimes they're a little big and he can't move them by himself. So there's a distinction there. But is there a distinction when it comes to spiritual life and spiritual death? Absolutely. You can see it. There's a transformation that begins to take place. And, and just like that, 
We talk about loving somebody into the kingdom. That sounds great and flowery. But that's not what Jesus said. Look at Matthew 16. I want to show you guys this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus talking again. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now these are terms that there's a bit misspoken, okay? This has been used for spiritual warfare, but that is not what it's talking about, okay? These are legal terms that were in the Jewish culture that binding means it's bound, it will happen, and loosing means you're allowing it to take place, okay? So if you bind something, you're restricting it, and if you loose it, you're allowing it. Make sense? They were legal definition in the culture. This is not spiritual warfare. I bind Satan because the problem, if that is true, we rebuke Satan, just so you know. But if it's true that we bind him, then who keeps unbinding him? And what if some poor sap says, I loose Satan? We'd have mad chaos. Anyway, but in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to Peter. What is implied when keys are given to somebody? You can go in. You control it. When you buy a house, what do they do as soon as you sign the papers? Until you have them keys, you have no access to it. Now, you might be able to get in. Right, Kayla? If you don't know, Kayla, many years ago, when we were living in Auburn, started coming to our youth group. And she and all her little friends, when we get done on Sunday nights, one night went to my house that I never locked. And I walked in, and I sit down, and I hear giggling coming from different parts of my house. And I'm like, what is that sound? And I get up, and I start looking around, and they're hiding behind different pieces of furniture, eating my ice cream. And they were not eating it out of bowls. They took the tubs and ate all my ice cream. I can't call it breaking and entering. Remember what it says that if you forgive the sins of any? All right. But if you give, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind is bound. Whatever you loose is allowed. That's authority, folks. You think about it, if you've ever had an employee and you send them out something, they're acting on your behalf. We were told when we were going to Bible school, it's like, remember, when you're out there and you're working your jobs, when people know that you're a student of Rhema, you are a representative of Rhema. Act like it. When we are a disciple of Christ, we have authority because we represent Him. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind is bound. Whatever you loose is loose. Now look at Matthew 18 because now we're going to see this come into practice a little bit. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. So now he's explaining, this is what we call church discipline. Somebody sins against you, what do you do? Go talk to them. It's pretty simple, okay? And if he hears you, means that, okay, I am sorry. He repents. 
you've regained him. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's an Old Testament reference. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, that's a lot. So step one, you go to them. Step two, what do you do? You take two or three with you, like-minded brothers, that there would be two or three witnesses. And that's important because, again, these are definitions that are used in the Jewish culture coming from the Old Testament law out of the mouth of two or three. It had to have at least two witnesses. For the Feast of Trumpets to be initiated, the new moon had to be seen by not one, but two people every time. One wasn't enough. And then at the moment they saw, so if it's cloudy, they can't see it. And if one guy sees it, the trumpet cannot be blown until the second witness sees it. So, if he refuses to hear the two or the three, including you, take it to the church. In other words, bring it to the body. What are we bringing to the body? The sin that was taking place. And if they refuse, let them be like a heathen and a tax collector. Now that's interesting. Because heathen is what? Simply put, not, not a follower of Christ. But a tax collector? IRS, baby. If he comes to your door, just say, get thee behind me. I don't think that'll work, but it'd be fun. Probably wouldn't be fun, actually. Treat the, So a heathen and a tax collector. What was a tax collector? It wasn't just a person who collected taxes. It was a person who stole. That's what they did. Because there was a little bit for the kingdom and a little bit for them. If your tax was one shilling, they'd take two. This is why they were wealthy. That's wrong, especially to a Jewish culture. So you treat the brother like a heathen and a tax collector, which what does that imply? There's heathens, and we treat them, we don't love them into the kingdom. Because all of this was confrontation, was it not? Absolutely. Now look at verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now what context are we in here? We're in this authority context of dealing with sin. Okay? We're dealing with the sin of a brother that came against us. Whatever you bind, if you throw him out, if he repents and you allow him to stay, you can retain or forgive. This. You see what's happening here? See, we've seen this used the first time in, in, in chapter 16. Now we're seeing it used again. This is a legal definition. But watch what he says then. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, we talked about the two or three witnesses. It was required. But he's talking about the authority. The authority. Did they have authority there to make this declaration? They did. He says, let me read this again. If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What? Done what? What are they asking? What are we talking about? What is the context? Dealing with sin inside of the church. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Here's, the, here's what this means. Is that as they are making these declarative statements, this brother is not, whatever. When those two or three stand up and make the declaration, 
It's as if Jesus himself is in the midst of them. They have their authority. So it's like if Jesus came up here and he said something. All right, Jesus physically comes up here. Does Jesus have authority to speak on Jesus' behalf? Absolutely he does. Right? And we would all be in awe, and we would all listen, and we'd be like, okay, I get that. But what if I did the same thing except that I read what Jesus said? Am I saying the words of Jesus? But as I say them, they're being said with authority, as if the words are coming from Jesus himself. Yes. See, that's the thing. We don't think about it this way. When Jesus said that I am in the midst of them, you are speaking on my behalf. You have the authority as if I'm standing here saying it myself. Do you guys get that? This is big. Because it's not just the healing piece and doing what Jesus did stuff. Like, it goes deeper than that. There's so much more here that we've missed out on. It's not like we walk around and we're just like, yeah, you're going to hell and you're going to hell and... (laughs) You thought you were good, but no, you're definitely going to hell. Oh, that Iowa t-shirt, you're going to hell too. No, that's not what it's talking about. You see, the standard of righteousness is not determined by you and I. What you and I do is we recognize it. The standard was determined by Jesus. We are his agent on this earth representing in him. So in what we say and what we do, we are speaking on behalf of God himself. That's what we do. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to end here. Verse 16. It says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now why is that? This is Paul talking. Because the flesh, it's not the real us. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, All things have become new. So why are we not regarding the flesh? Because you're a new creation. Inside is where you matter. Verse 18, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now stop. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And he's given us, what did he give us? The ministry of reconciliation. Well, what is that? Ministry implies what? We're doing something. That is, God was in Christ. So was God in Christ? Yep. Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And what has he done? He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Sins you forgive, sins you retain. Do we have the ability to tell the world that there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Not just the ability, the responsibility. Look at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Representative, agents of Jesus, which makes us agents of the Father. As though 
God, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, that's the thing. This authority on this earth is far greater than you even realize. You and I don't determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, for lack of a better term. We don't determine that. What do we do? We recognize it. I know this is different than what we often think. Did he or did he not give them the ability to forgive and to retain? He did. He told them that. Are we Christ's ambassadors? Yes. It's as though God were pleading through us. In other words, God was standing right here pleading through you and I. As we speak our words, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Your sins don't have to be imputed to you. God can take those away. You see, that is, guys, that authority piece, our representative piece is so much deeper than we even recognize. See, we've got to get this down. We have the life of God in us. When it says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, he quickens and makes alive this mortal body, it's like, what if that's true? And what if we, we really went out there and we were just preaching the gospel and making disciples and not only us but they would be going around and then we would say that the kingdom of God is at hand and they were teaching and that they were preaching and that they were laying hands on the sick and they were casting out demons. What would happen if we just started acting like that's true? Things would change. It would change in our lives. It would change in their lives. But you've got to understand something. It's as though Christ or God pleading through us on Christ's behalf. Now, how does that happen? You actually have to open up your stinking mouth and say it. You ever pleaded with your children? For the love of all that is holy, leave your brother alone. Please. He perked up, didn't he? You see, man, God is good. But look what he has given us. It's not just the ability. See, it's not a haughty thing. It's a responsibility thing. We're not determining who's in and who's out. We know because of Scripture what God has done. Now, we're going to have a little testimony time. And I am super excited about this. So if you two want to come on up, and I know Kayla's going to do all the talking. But I have no ice cream for you to steal, so... <laughs> But you stopped locking your house again, you told me. Uh, I never did lock my You're house. Anyway. So apparently, apparently I'm going to talk. So. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, some of you know, some of you don't, uh, but if you don't, um, my wife, Caleb, Memorial Day weekend of 2018, um, had a stroke um, caused by what is known as APS. It's antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. That's, it's a lot. So you're welcome, Chris. Stick with um, the APS. <laughs> So long story short, um, basically it's a, a blood clotting disorder that causes the proteins in the blood to mesh together. And as they mesh, they form clots. Or in this case, it was actually a, uh, basically a growth or what they call the vegetation that formed on the outside of her mitral valve. A piece of that had happened to break off and traveled up into the brain and caused the, the, the stroke. 
So anyway, uh, going forward, so obviously met with tons of doctors, different specialists, things like that. Um, and it was like, you're gonna take this, you're gonna take that, you're gonna take this, you're gonna take that because this will help with this. And it's like, okay. So fast forward to where, and we were also told that as far as like family purposes later in life, like we would probably have to adopt or go that route or she'd be too, way too high risk to become pregnant, whatever the case may be. So fast forward, we're coming to um, the, the meetings that Chad was here when he was praying. Um, and I don't know, something changed in Kayla. She's like, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna declare, I'm just gonna say that I'm, I'm healed, just 100%. So she decided, I, at first, I will admit, I was a little skeptical because she's like, well, I'm not taking my meds. I'm not gonna take my blood thinners. I'm not gonna take this. I'm not gonna take that. I'm walking in it. And I was like, I had to go to Chris because I'm like, Chris, what do I do with this? <laughs> I'm like, they say happy, happy wife, happy life, but I don't know if I can let this go. Um, so I just was like, okay, fine. She's got enough faith to believe it, so I'm gonna go ahead and just believe it. 100%, she's, she's healed. She went and had blood tests done, it would have been Thursday, this past Thursday. Um, as of right now, everything that they've tested for, with her being off her meds, has come back completely normal. So, she, she went from being, uh, they, they called it uh, anemia or anemic, her iron levels were so low, she had transfusions done, they no, the transfusions didn't do anything to the levels, and then all of a sudden, she's there. They tested them, and they're like, "Yeah, hey, your levels are fine." So that that was really, really. I mean, like that was awesome. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Um, so the next part I'm going to lead into, uh, Chris might be able to expound on a little more because it was like the first was it the first Sunday or the second Sunday? I'll remember what Sunday it, it was. It's been very long. We showed up, and it was a morning. Chris looked at us, and he's like. You guys are coming up here because we want to pray for you. And everybody gathered, and they were praying about pregnancy yeah, and, and I, family. I, I, I'll, I'll chime in here. So as we were standing there worshiping, we were playing a song, Waymaker. And um, I'm just like, we've got we've to lay hands on these people. Because, I mean, I just kept hearing the conception. I just, I'm like, I just couldn't get past it. And so I'm like, we're going to pray for them right now. And it was funny. They're standing over there, and they're kind of in worship and all of that. And I'm like, like you know what? When God moves, we've got to move. And we got to pray for him. we got to be obedient to the Spirit. And I said, I want to pray for you two. And they're sitting there like this. And they're like, us? I'm like, yeah, get up here now, ice cream thief. And anyway, we prayed for him. So they prayed for us that Sunday. Um, and like I said, going back to Chad's meetings. Um, and I don't know exactly how to just lead into this, but um, pregnant. she's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you lead into that. Yeah, yeah it's funny because Kayla, and these are Kayla's word, always says that Derek's the woman in the relationship because she'll just get to the point. Fair. Yeah. So we are super excited for them, obviously, because God is faithful. And so what I want to do is I want to gather, I want to pray for them again. And just because we are so excited. Um, I think you just went up to them just like a week or two ago. And Yoli did wherever she is. I don't know where she is. They both did last. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just last week, they both came up and was like, 
so when are you guys having a baby? Yeah. Oh, when's this going to happen? And I'm like, and then I tested Tuesday, and I was pregnant. Yeah, so, we're excited. so let's gather for him. Let's pray for him. We are super excited. Wow. Or she, whoever, yeah. He or she, yes, yes. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your word. Every promise is yes and amen to him who believes. Lord, we just thank you that the life of God is just moving through them. Your life, your power, your goodness, your mercy. Lord, we're so grateful that this is a testimony to your faithfulness. And so, Lord, I thank you that they will stay spiritually minded. And, Lord, I thank you for the life of this child. This child will become, come forth, Lord, and be a servant to you. And every time that they will look at little Christopher, <laughs> they'll be reminded of your faithfulness. So, Lord, we thank you for your life just flowing through them. I had to get that in there. So, Lord, that's right. You are so good, and we are so grateful. We are so grateful for your goodness. Bless this couple and all that they do. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Guys, have a great week. God bless y'all. Or Christina, right? Or Christina. I'm easy. I'm easy.